We just sang about an unclouded day, didn't we? Kind of brings to thought of appreciation in many ways. The characteristic description in Revelation 21 of that beautiful climb called heaven. It is true that there's no need for the sun, of course, because the Lord Jesus Christ is all the sun they'll ever need. But as you think about the possibility of clouds there, kind of interesting that we just sang about an unclouded day. And doesn't it remind us about the great place and we look forward to being there. You may have noticed in the title of the lesson tonight, as you'll see on the wall to my left, the New Testament timeline. As I made preparation of and tried to put together some thoughts for this lesson tonight, it occurred to me that that text in 1 Thessalonians 2.17 could perhaps prompt us, that text as well as so many others, to give some thought to a timeline of the New Testament. In fact, you'll notice this introductory slide I hope will motivate us to give some appreciation and thought, the Bible, after all, is a, is a historical book. It was written from our perspective a long time ago. In fact, the very last book of the New Testament was written well over 1,900 years ago now. That means from our vantage point, it was written so very long ago. And that, in many ways, is a challenge. For as you and I read the 27 New Testament books, for example... And we attempt to appreciate, to understand, to apply what we read there. It always does us well to try to keep thoroughly in mind the circumstances, the context, the situation. And so a timeline can be helpful. And that's the reason, in part, that I put this lesson together this evening. You'll furthermore notice about the middle of that slide that this timeline also reminds us that these things discussed in the New Testament they were real people. Epaphroditus was a real sick man in Philippians chapter 2. And when Paul said that he was near unto death due to his allegiance to Christ, that really happened. There really was a man named Luke. He was a doctor. He wrote, again, two books of the New Testament. And it would do us well as we then read about the book of Acts to appreciate Luke was a companion of Paul, at least for parts of the second of the two missionary journeys. Let's add to that this. As we at least appreciate that historical character, tonight we're going to look at some dates. Now, I know those aren't always the most enjoyable pieces of information, but I do think, at least in general, they might be able to provide us with some assistance. That leads me to one last thought. As you study your own Bible, or at least other sources, some particular dates might vary slightly from the ones that, that I will mention tonight. And in fact, let me preface these with that statement. I feel as though these are pretty close, but they may be off a year or two here or there. And so please don't, don't get too upset with me on that point. I do think these are at least very close. And they at least give us a framework in which we can look at the features and the aspects of the New Testament timeline. And with that said, let's begin. The Old Testament in its 39 books prepares us for the New Testament. And it does so by not only preparing the world for the coming of the Christ, but also preparing the detailed specifics just as the Old Testament prophets had said that, that in fact that would be the case. And therefore, and for us, the curtain opens in 4 B.C., Jesus, our Savior, was born as nearly as we can tell in that year. 
Now you might take note that in as much as he was born that year, we've already had earlier discussions in some sermons about likely the time of year in which he was born, and likely it was about September or maybe a very, very early October for you and me. But the fact is, our Savior, although he had a pre-fleshly existence, he was born of the Virgin Mary in what we would call somewhat late to, to middle part of that very year 4 B.C., as you begin to note from there, the Bible doesn't give us very many details about his early life in the flesh. In fact, we have but one glimpse when he was age 12. Now, we are told, of course, that he went down and was subject to his parents. But other than that, we really know nearly nothing until the year 26 A.D. By this time, the reason we know something there, our Savior began his preaching, public ministry, now, you'll well appreciate he would have been 30 years old that year. I say all of that to say that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Daniel had specifically foretold that when 69 weeks had passed, that in fact this great Messiah would begin his proclamation public ministry. And so it was, Jesus exactly began to teach and preach publicly. Now, you and I remember he, had, he selected some 12 apostles to labor and work with him. And you'll notice that would continue this public ministry for somewhat over three years, but it appears a bit less than three and a half. At that point, that brings us to the year 30 A.D. In this year, as our Savior had taught and preached, He had worked miracles and impacted the lives of so very many the Jewish resistance, the Jewish leaders by this point had begun with a very heightened and aggressive form to resist Him. And that reached a crescendo in what you and I would call the early part of the year 30 A.D. Now, quite frankly, it was the Passover season. And they put our Savior to death. They, in fact, tried Him, had false witnesses brought in to levy accusations against Him. And ultimately, they even twisted his own words. But ultimately, they put him to death that year at the Passover season. You'll notice that didn't end the story, however. Because just as surely as those gospel accounts detail the fact that he did die on that cross, when that Sunday morning came up from the grave, he arose because the power of the devil was unable to hold him. And so it was. In Acts chapter 2, that's the very word that Peter preached that day. Although that with wicked hands you, he said, had put him to death, the bars of death were unable to hold him. And therefore, you'll note these additional comments. In that very same year at the Pentecost, just as the Old Testament had prophesied, the church began. That precious kingdom that Jesus died to establish, roughly 50 days following the very occurrence of his death at the Passover season. The church began at the Pentecost season. From our reckoning, that would take it to the end of May or early in June of that year. And isn't it interesting that initially we read in the book of Acts about an explosive growth. That church, although it started with about 3,000 members on that day of Pentecost, when about 3,000 responded. By the time we arrive at two chapters later, the number had ballooned to 5,000. And as the book of Acts journeys onward, time and again we read, the Word of God prevailed and was magnified. 
And soon we find congregations started all over the place in the Roman Empire. Again, the church grew very explosively. In a fantastic statement of Colossians 1.23, and we're going to note the book of Colossians shortly, but that book was written only a little over 30 years after the church was established, and yet in that text Paul said, every creature under heaven had heard the gospel. Doesn't that indicate how beautifully that gospel message had spread? As you and I close this slide, it brings us ready for the next one. And our journey is going to go onward to the year 32 A.D. So again, we're probably a bit less than two years forward. And you'll notice on this occasion, we now arrive at a gentleman named Saul. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was a very great opponent to the things of Christianity. So much so that he even had in his possession letters that allowed him in Damascus to arrest and imprison Christians. Now, there is certainly some question as to the exactness of that year, but it appears to me about 32 A.D. is a fit time to at least make note of it. And you'll notice by this point the actual chapter recording this is Acts chapter 9 first and then later in Acts 22, and Paul even records it again for us in description in Acts 26. In 35 A.D., Based on Galatians 1 verse 18, Paul said three years after his conversion, so that would take us to 35 A.D., he made his first journey to Jerusalem. Where therein, you notice, he was able to confer with and talk with precious Christians located there. Once we pass 35 A.D., we arrive at 41. Now you'll note that's roughly 10 years or so past the actual establishment of the church, but now the precious scene that, set, that is set before us is the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. Now the Old Testament had foretold that the actual statement that the, the Spirit of God would be made available to all flesh, but God didn't promise it would happen at the same moment, and so the Jews were invited in first on Pentecost. And there was a period of years for which the Jews had the privilege of hearing the gospel, becoming acclimated to it. But there still was question about the Gentiles. In fact, even Peter had that question in Acts chapter 10. When in fact that sheet was lowered three times before his vision. And he was told, rise Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And yet the Spirit on that occasion reminded him, don't ever call common or unclean what I have cleansed. And at that point, the door, there was a knock at the door, and it was the very servants from Cornelius. And thus Peter went with them, and he then knew what the thrust of that angelic vision had been. At that point, you and I notice we arrive at 46 A.D., and the reason that particular date takes on a heightened appreciation is because it will be centered in some powerful notes in the book of Acts. Because you and I know that once Paul was converted, there came a time when, in fact, he made these choices and these selections to enter on some missionary journeys, evangelistic tours, if you will. The first missionary journey commenced in A.D. 46. Now you'll notice we're roughly 15, maybe 16 years past the establishment of the church. And Paul, on this occasion, you'll note these comments. 
Barnabas was the gentleman who accompanied him. And to give us some assistance, here's a map. If you, in fact, follow along the numbers, if you're able to read them, you'll notice that you have over to the far right from your perspective that city of Antioch, and that was in essence the sponsoring congregation for this missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas left there, went to Seleucia, which is the seaport town rather near to Antioch, and then they sailed to the island of Cyprus. See it at the bottom of, of, of the map. They arrived at Cyprus and first journeyed on that from east to west. And there's where, in fact, a wonderful conversion took place, as we read in Acts 13. From there, they, in fact, sailed to the mainland and journeyed through various cities located there near the bottom part of that map. Now, if I might do so, let me return to the previous slide, since I listed there some cities for your consideration. On that first missionary journey, cities of Salamis and Paphos, Perga, Pisidia, and Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then at that point, in an interesting way, they retraced and visited the same cities in reverse order. From there, they sailed back to Atala and finally back to the city of Antioch, from which that missionary journey had begun some year and a half earlier. Now, as they made that journey, that first missionary journey, notice that the gospel now had come to that place in Asia Minor. Paul had planted there and established congregations. Some of those same ones we will later read when we come to the book of Galatians. For Paul wrote that letter to those same individuals. No wonder with that in mind, let's now go past our map and we come to the next year. So far, we have at least come from the beautiful establishment of the church to those early years of explosive growth and now to the first missionary journey where this great soldier of the cross named Paul carried the gospel into distant places. However, he wasn't by any means finished. Because as we come to the year 49 A.D., now there's an interesting conference, I'll call it that. And the record of it is found in Acts 15. The issue surrounds this. There was a question about circumcision. The Jews were under the illusion, at least many were, that it was necessary for Gentiles to first be circumcised in order to then become Christians. Perhaps you and I can imagine the degree of question that that would raise. These Jews, after all, many of them had grown up beneath an Old Testament system in which circumcision was central. It was that important. But yet here are these Gentiles, and so we're supposed to just invite them into the church by virtue of the plan of salvation without circumcision? And that question troubled many, many people. Several New Testament books, in fact, will make mention of that problem. Needless to say, the God of heaven saw fit for this discussion to take place in Acts 15. Paul was there, as well as Barnabas. And you may remember that James, the half-brother of our Lord, was there. In fact, it was he who was the principal spokesman. If we may come to the verdict, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in the flesh. In fact, James even laid it forth like this, We shall lay no such burden upon them because the Holy Spirit hasn't seen fit to make demand of it. 
Now, as that finishes, that brings us to 53 A.D. Paul now commences a second missionary journey. It'll visit different places now than the first one did, and in fact, it'll be far further removed from the actual city of Jerusalem. Let's begin with some comments. The one who was the companion of Paul was different. It was, remember, Barnabas was the companion on the first journey. This one, it turned out to be Silas. There's an interesting story behind that. Maybe that's a bit of a digression for the lesson this evening. But as you and I noticed, Silas wasn't the only one. There will come a time that we are first introduced to a man named Timothy. And what a central figure throughout some of the Old New Testament he shall later be. But not only that, Luke, the very one who wrote the book of Acts and who wrote the book of Luke... He too will at least be a companion on part of the second and third missionary journeys. To those things might we add this. Here's an extensive listing of the cities that Paul visited on that second journey. There was cities throughout Cilicia and Syria, Derbe, Lystra, through Phrygia and Galatia, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, Athens and Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, and finally back to Antioch. Now again, Antioch was the sponsoring congregation that Antioch, of course, located just, just a little bit north of Jerusalem. And one more time, maybe a map will be helpful. And so here it is. Now before, you may appreciate that the cities that were visited on the first journey were basically down to the far right as you look at that map. Now, the cities that Paul visited, you'll notice, were much more up near the far left and near the top. This one had a lot more miles in it. And not only that, it was a longer journey. In fact, he even stayed in Corinth and Ephesus combined for several years on this journey. Looking at that map, you may notice again that as Paul journeyed in these locations, remember, he was coming to places in which by and large the gospel was new. Although there may have been a few who may have heard of it due to their travels in distant places, Paul was planting congregations such as Thessalonica, Berea, and others. Surely it's fair to notice as we go back to the previous slide that it was during this time that Paul wrote the books of First and Second Thessalonians. I've tried to put that at the bottom of the slide. Now, that's the first observation we have made tonight about when certain books were written. It would appear that those two books were likely very near the first New Testament books that would have been written. Now, isn't that interesting? As you and I read from Matthew onward, maybe we're under the impression that maybe Matthew was written first, and then Mark, and then Luke. But the books, as they appear in our Bibles, are not chronological. First and, second First and Second Thessalonians come far along, of course, in the actual appearance of the books in our New Testaments. But First Thessalonians especially was written one of the very first ones. Let's go to our next slide again, passing that mile. Because we arrive at the third missionary journey. Here was this laborer named Paul, and as excited and as eager as he was carrying the gospel into these far distant places, which all were in the Roman Empire. 
even after concluding the second journey, Paul wasn't satisfied. In fact, he made the statement, we need to go and visit our brethren and see how they're doing. Isn't that so interesting? Today, we'd pick up a phone or check somebody's Facebook. Paul had to go visit them. He didn't know their condition otherwise. And so as we arrive at 56 A.D., he now undertakes the third missionary journey. You may notice Timothy is the primary companion this time. It isn't Silas, it isn't Barnabas. When we add to that the following, there is again a visit through some places that look somewhat familiar, but there's also many new ones. As you and I list places like Corinth and Macedonia, Troas, Assos, Samos, Mytilene, Miletus, and then even Jerusalem. You have the impression that as Paul journeyed to, to these places, we have the impression in Acts 20 he was in a hurry for some of it because he wanted to make it back to the Jerusalem for the celebration of the feast. Isn't it interesting as we perhaps look at this map, this map of the third journey, you'll again notice some differing cities that are highlighted compared to what we just saw on the last one. But as this third missionary journey was undertaken and completed, look at the vast area that now were such that it had been brought the gospel. Wouldn't you say that Paul did a tremendous effort? Here he may have lived in a world with millions of people, but he took it upon himself due to the commissioning and charge of none other than Jesus himself on that road to Damascus. You're going to be a special servant to mine, Jesus told him. And Paul took that seriously. He called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, didn't he? You'll notice on that map, as Paul brought the gospel to all these places, having such a central place in that development. Let's go back to the previous slide again. And notice at the bottom, again, several more New Testament letters were written by this man on these locations. The book of 1 Corinthians was written from the city of Ephesus while Paul was stationed there on the third journey. And so as we read, for instance, the book of 1 Corinthians, and especially Ephesians, we can gain an impression about the time frame and the circumstances dealt with in those books. To that, why don't we add this one? 2 Corinthians was written from Macedonia. We soon will take that book up on our Wednesday evening studies once we complete the Revelation. And as we give thought to it again, we will have something about the time frame that will help us greatly to appreciate not only the issues with which that congregation was dealing, but the aftermath of how they had received the first epistle. What about nextly, the book of Galatians? Now, the Galatian letter, as you can see here, would have been one of the earlier New Testament books written. And I think we highlighted that when we studied Galatians in some detail on Wednesday evenings here a few years ago. Finally, might we notice the book of Romans. One of the features about this particular slide is that it does help us see that Galatians and Romans were written very near to one another in time. And that's why on Wednesday nights we studied them basically back to back. We studied Romans first, appreciating its 16 chapters, then... Since in time it follows so closely and dealt with some similar issues, 
we were able to look immediately into the six chapters of Galatians. As we close that slide, again, looking past the map, it brings us to the year 60 A.D. So remember, that third journey started in 56, and it would have closed shortly before 60 A.D. But for Paul, the matters began to rather tensefully come, come to a halt. Because you'll notice Paul was arrested. He had arrived at Jerusalem, and he was arrested on a false charge, according to the book of Acts. That brings us to this appreciation. He now has to undergo a number of trials. He was arraigned, hauled before these various Roman and otherwise officials. I've listed several of them for you. He appeared before the Sanhedrin on one occasion in, in chapter 22 and 23, before Felix and then before Festus in Acts chapters 24 and 25, before Agrippa in chapter 26. But you may remember that Paul on one occasion had to make appeal unto Caesar and therefore here was this soldier of the cross who appeared before the highest ranking Roman official of all, the Caesar himself. At that point, you'll notice all of that's detailed in Acts chapters 21 through 28. And through all of that, as he appealed unto Caesar, one of those officials said to Caesar, you must go. And therefore, Paul made yet another trip. This one typically isn't called one of the missionary journeys. It's called his voyage to Rome. And so here is a map of that one. On this voyage to Rome, you'll notice again, Paul was basically paid by the Roman Empire to go on what amounted to another missionary journey. I think we've all perhaps been impressed by that. His travel expenses, his food bill, and everything was paid by Rome so that he ultimately could make that journey. But along the way, Paul taught the gospel. Didn't he teach it? to a gentleman named Lysias, among others. And when he arrived by way of shipwreck on an island, here he planted the gospel among these barbarian peoples on the island of Malta. Paul took the gospel with him wherever he went. Now you'll notice he did arrive at Rome. Far off to the upper left-hand side of that map was the imperial city of Rome, and there Paul arrived. Going back to that previous slide, You'll notice more books were written about this time frame. Four of the New Testament letters are called prison epistles. That simply means they were written by Paul when Paul was actually under arrest, when he was in prison. Now that has a rather interesting utility, especially in light of some of those books. You may take note of which ones they were. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon especially as you give thought to, 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 to two of those four. Here was Philippians, widely regarded, I suppose, by many as one of the most positive, one of the most joyous, one of the happiest sounding books in all the New Testament, and yet the man that wrote it was in prison. Doesn't that highlight what Christianity can mean to a person? How it can give you a mindset how it can give you a perspective that is a victorious one regardless of your particular circumstances. What about Ephesians? Here again, a six-chapter book widely looked upon as a central focus on this. 
the Christ of the church. That's a simple phrase. It helps you remember the basic thrust of Ephesians. And yet the man that wrote it was in prison for this same Jesus. Doesn't it give you a renewed impression about the man Paul and his mindset when he wrote them? Perhaps one last thought about Philemon. Remember, Paul was in prison. Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, made contact with Paul. Paul taught that man the gospel, and he was baptized into Christ. Even in prison, Paul was teaching the precious truths of Christianity, wasn't he? One more thing, though, as you try to gauge the writing of some of the other books... It seems like probably Matthew was written about this time. But it was written by Matthew, of course, not not Paul. The next slide will add some more pieces of information to, to this discussion. Because Paul was released on this occasion. We just made note that he was arrested. And for some time, he, of course, was under house arrest. But he was released, thankfully. In fact, we're detailed in terms of some of those things in the New Testament. And here, perhaps, our mind begins to wonder slightly. Some of these things I have filled in based on statements that Paul did make. For instance, we do seemingly know that after he was released, Paul labored some more in Asia Minor. It seems as though he again journeyed to Macedonia... Now, the visit to Spain I make based on Romans 15. Paul was hopeful of going to Spain. We don't have any New Testament record that he did. But it would seem that if he did make it to Spain, it had to be during that time period. And finally, also additional work on the island of Crete. Partly we say that due to the book of Titus. At that point, we seemingly notice that Paul wrote the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. Also during this time, Luke wrote the book of Luke. The book of Hebrews was written. I say Paul. The book of Hebrews is such that its author is not named. So we don't know for sure that Paul wrote that book. But it seems whoever wrote it, this was likely the time when it was written. James at this time wrote the book of James. Mark wrote the book of Mark. Peter wrote the books of First and Second Peter. And finally, Luke penned that book of Acts. One by one, as you have looked then at all of these, there's only a few of the New Testament books that remain. And so why don't we close our discussion like this. We've now arrived at 68 A.D. That precious apostle was arrested one more time. But this time he would never be released. In fact, you'll notice he was finally executed on this occasion. Under the great persecution brought about by Nero, this man himself was put to death, that great soldier of the cross. In 2 Timothy 4, he in fact, not long before he died, he made this statement, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing." Isn't it amazing then to think they chopped his head off, apparently. And that great soldier's life in the flesh was no more. Notice how things make a very dramatic turn. In the year 70 A.D., not long before a new Roman Caesar had come to the throne, and 
a very decided attack was made against Jerusalem and Rome ultimately destroyed it. That city where the temple had been, that city that was the center of the old law of Moses' religion, it was destroyed. The Roman armies, in fact, did away with it. It's exactly what Jesus had foretold. You remember Him in Matthew 24 saying, When they brought to His attention, do you see the great stones of the temple? And Jesus said, I'm telling you, the time is coming, not one stone will be left on another. And 40 years later, it happened just like Jesus said it would. With the destruction of Jerusalem, you notice that only leaves us a handful of New Testament books remaining. It would appear that the Apostle John wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well as the Gospel of John somewhere very late. I would say between 80 and 90 A.D. it would seem would be the time frame for all of those books. And finally, one book's left. John also wrote the Revelation. Again, it would seem it was the last of the ones written sometime after 90 A.D. it would seem. And so it is that the New Testament closes. All 27 books have now been discussed. And at least in terms of time, aren't you impressed? All 27 of them were written in roughly a 50-year period. The God of heaven had seen fit to put into writing that which was perfect. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. That which was perfect had come. No longer were men dependent on those especially equipped individuals who had, say, the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. God's Word was now written. And individuals could obtain copies of it. And they could, of course, study it and learn from it. As you and I close that slide, we also close our lesson. Our time frame tonight has taken us through the characteristics of it. Those 27 books, by far the finest document ever to have been written because only it can save the souls of, of men and women. It is the final written Word of God. Maybe you and I could remember that wasn't it true in Hebrews 1? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken unto us by His Son, Jesus Christ. This is His last will and testament. There will never be another inspired document. This is it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. And therefore, with the close of that writing, historically we've at least seen tonight some of the features about the time frame, the timeline of it. And so on that slide, isn't it sweet then to hear Jesus again say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Paul did it. James did it. Peter and the others, they did that. And that's the time frame. That's the backdrop of those events in the first century. And as I mentioned earlier twice in Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes the statement that that gospel... The gospel that in fact is the only hope of the human family. That gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Tonight, aren't you and I still the blessed beneficiaries of those efforts and those events back then? Perhaps at some point in the future, we'll take a look at the Old Testament this way. 
But I hope at least tonight our appetite has been whetted for the historical character and the circumstances surrounding the time frame of the writing of the New Testament and the features about the nature of what's contained in those 27 books. Tonight, as we each examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, borrowing the wording of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if there's anyone in the audience and your life matched against the presentation of the New Testament is lacking, and lacking in a rather egregious way, why not come tonight back to your first love? If you've become a Christian, you've known what the truth is, and you had even obeyed it, but your life has begun to take on a turn that's not consistent with Jesus Christ. You know He isn't pleased with it. You realize you need to be submissive to the Master. Why not come humbly before Him tonight, making repentance and confession of those things and inviting brethren to pray to God on your behalf? If you've never become a Christian, however, you perhaps tonight have been impressed with what God did providentially through time to bring this book about and to put it in the hands of of even yourself, one who could learn of it, make application of it, implement it in life, and live pleasingly, having all the hope of heaven at your disposal. And so if it is the case, though you have never begun that walk, remember, if judgment first begins at the household of faith, namely Christians, what's going to be the end of those who have not that faith, 1 Peter 4.17? And oh, what a frightful thing to even consider. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. This evening, if you'd like to become a Christian, you know God wants you to, and Jesus wants you to, and the Holy Spirit wants you to, and the Pippin Church wants you to. If we could study with you, we'd be honored to do that. If we could help you, though, tonight to bring that conversion into Christ about, we'd be happy to assist. You need to believe in Jesus Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you in that way tonight, we would love to do it, and we'd invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.